Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode Community, the Major Themes of the Broadway Musical, Part 3. Over the past two episodes, we've explored the principal themes that underlie the greatest number of Broadway musicals. First, transgressive women, then last week, equity, justice, and inclusion, and today, community. Musical theater is a very effective form for dramatizing entire communities of people, and often the community itself becomes a major character in the drama. Because of this natural ability, dozens of Broadway musicals, including many of the most popular, acclaimed, and influential, have focused nearly as much on the triumphs and tribulations of the community in the story as they do on the individual central characters. In these shows, the fate and fortunes of the hero and heroine are completely tied into and dependent on the ability of the community to thrive and function, and vice versa. Overall, I would suggest that Broadway musicals have strongly advocated that it is vitally important for us as humans to come together and form harmonious and well-functioning communities, even if it means that we have to compromise or give something up in order to achieve it. You can imagine how mind-blowing it has been to be putting this particular episode together during this past week. But, as always, I find that these silly Broadway musicals are actually inspiring works of art that have much to teach us. It was probably inevitable that community would become one of the musical's major themes because the central dynamics of a community are baked into the process, form, and structure of musical theater. Choral singing and group dancing, both of which are natural indigenous communal events, are perfect vehicles for insightfully revealing the feelings and values of a community. From the earliest days of humanity, from the caveman on, people have been drawn to participate in group singing and dancing. These are activities that are inherently human to do and that are often tied to meaningful events in the life of the community. The harvest, the changing of the seasons, weddings, and various religious celebrations, and on every continent and in every culture in the world. Because song and dance is in our very DNA, these organic community events are a very powerful force for musical theater writers to draw on and tap into. This was especially true during the Golden Age because the casts of those shows could be so large. It was not unusual to have 50 or even 70 or 80 people in a musical in those days, and this allowed for large singing and dancing choruses. So it was very easy for these musicals to depict an entire town or village or a neighborhood or subculture within a large city. Author Jeffrey Sweet contends that in a traditional musical, the members of the chorus represent a community that shares words. He says this community sings lyrics in unison because it shares values. I would add that they also share music, which immediately puts them in tune with one another. 
and they often sing in harmony, and that is the perfect metaphor for a group that is able to work and function well together. One of the dictionary definitions of harmony is to be in agreement or concord. Also, the chorus often moves and dances in unison in synchronized and interconnecting patterns. They work together as a unit. Right there, you have all of the elements of the community reflected and embodied in the very performance of a musical. Another key dramatic strength of the musical is the way that expert theater writers can employ music and lyrics to take us inside the thoughts and feelings of the show's characters, even multiple characters simultaneously. Think of the Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love sequence in a chorus line. That amazing musical number where the dancers talk about their experiences going through puberty and adolescence. The effect of this sequence is that we feel like we are hearing the inner thoughts of all 18 characters all at the same time. After your father's side of the family, the ugly side, wait until your father gets home, swear to God and hope to die. Or consider the truly thrilling, almost first act finale of West Side Story, the Tonight Quintet, as well as another sequence that was clearly inspired by it, the thrilling first act finale of Les Mis, One More Day. Now, you might think that the writers of Les Mis should have been sending a royalty check to the West Side Story team, but that's how art works. There's a famous quote, bad artists copy and great artists steal. And this has been attributed to everyone from Picasso to T.S. Eliot to John Lennon. What it means is that if you are really a gifted artist, you can co-op something that somebody else has created and reimagine it, reinvent it, and make it entirely your own. Both numbers place the central characters all on stage at the same time, even though in the story they are actually in different locations all over the neighborhood in West Side Story and all over Paris in Les Mis. And in both numbers, the audience is able to experience and understand what each character and group is feeling and thinking as they prepare for and anticipate the big events that are about to take place. This kind of writing goes hand in hand with another strength of the musical, the use of non-realistic, abstract staging. In a play or film, it is very difficult and awkward to portray the reality of multiple characters thinking different thoughts and having various feelings all at the same time. But a musical can condense time and space and reveal all of the characters' individual thoughts and perspectives. This is why I think musicals can be realer than real. 
musicals are often better at representing the actual multiple layers of real life than our other more naturalistic forms of drama. The musical Fiddler on the Roof is a perfect example of all of this. The village of Anatevka is brought to life and established as a principal character in the story through a series of dynamic musical numbers. The opening sequence where the entire town is introduced and the shared traditions and beliefs of the Jewish community are made clear. Then there's To Life, a celebration of an engagement where we see the two conflicting factions of the town, the Russians and the Jews, briefly come together and we experience a vision of what the future could be. In the wedding celebration, we see the intense joy of a community that unexpectedly finds itself embracing liberating change, which is then suddenly swept away by violence and destruction. And Fiddler ends with a heartbreaking finale in which we see the community disperse and go its separate ways. Anatevka, Anatevka, intimate, obstinate, Anatevka, where I know Soon I'll be a stranger in a strange new place Searching for an old familiar face From Anatevka I belong in Anatevka Tumble down work a day Even that very brief summary of Fiddler reveals two very important things. First of all, the power of ritual in these community-themed musicals. In every culture in the world, music, dance, and theatrical storytelling have, since the beginning of time, been part of both religious rituals and secular celebrations, and entire communities would participate in them and be defined by them. The performance of a play or musical itself is a kind of ritual, and one that evolved from religious celebrations, so it's only natural that community rituals would figure so prominently in the plots of musicals, especially weddings. Weddings almost always symbolize the resolution of a conflict within the community and the promise of a bright future. The obstacle to marriage, and there has to be an obstacle or there's no story, is almost always some kind of cultural mismatch, something about the community that is keeping the two lovers apart, something that is woven into the very fabric of the community that has to be resolved. Secondly, Fiddler demonstrates, as I just indicated, that effective stories are driven by conflict. So if you're telling a story about a community, you're going to have to include characters that are in conflict with the community. This is often someone who is a dissenter or outcast from the community, and they become the antagonist in the story. Or you're going to have to have elements of the community that are in conflict with each other. Rodgers and Hammerstein brilliantly employed all of these elements in their very first show, Oklahoma. What is the central conflict within the community of Oklahoma? For audiences today, this can often be hard to grasp, even though there's an entire song about it. The farmer and the cowman should be friends. Oh, the farmer and the cowman should be friends. One man likes to push a plow, the other likes to chase a cow, but that's no reason why they can't be friends. 
Territory folks should stick together. Territory folks should all be pals. Cowboys dance with the farmers' daughters. Farmers dance with the ranchers' gals. Territory folks should stick together. Territory folks should all be pals. Cowboys dance with the farmers' daughters. Farmers dance with the ranchers' gals. The farmers and the cowmen must be friends can seem like just a lighthearted hoedown to get the second act rolling but a well-thought-out production of Oklahoma will help us to understand that the range wars that took place across the western United States during this time were a very real and serious conflict, an intense, sometimes violent fight over the land. The cowboys wanted wide-open ranges where their cattle could roam free and be driven to market, and the farmers wanted the land controlled and fenced in so their crops would be protected from being eaten or trampled. In an agrarian society, which America certainly was in 1906 when Oklahoma is set, and to a great extent still was in the 1940s when it was first produced, these were life-and-death issues. Dramatically, the farmers and the cowmen represent opposing values. The farmers represent civilization, the settlement of the land, and the establishment of schools, churches, and families. The auction of the picnic baskets that figure so prominently into the plot of Oklahoma is being held to raise money to build the new schoolhouse. This is not arbitrary. The playwrights made that choice on purpose to underline this issue. The cowboys, on the other hand, represent untethered freedom, as well as a very American ideal of self-reliance and self-determination. Cole Porter, in spite of being probably the least likely person to write a cowboy song, captured this perfectly when he wrote... Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. The cowboys represent what have traditionally been seen as masculine values, and the farmers represent traditional feminine values and concerns. You could also define this conflict as being between libertarian values and communitarian values. Libertarians seek to maximize political freedom and autonomy, emphasizing freedom of choice. This is another very American philosophy, as exemplified by the flag and motto, Don't Tread on Me. Communitarian ideas, also very American, revolve around the basic concept that we are all in this together. The conflict between these two trains of thought and belief is manifesting itself right now with the COVID crisis. And that same conflict is at the heart of Oklahoma. The musical tells the story of how these conflicting values eventually come into balance. What happens at the end of Oklahoma? Two couples, Lori and Curly and Ado Annie and Will Parker, each couple embodying opposite sides of the conflict, a female farmer marrying a male cowman, joined together in the partnership, collaboration, and compromise of marriage. In his terrific book called The American Musical and the Formation of National Identity, author Raymond Knapp puts it this way, Both the farmer and the cowman have just claims on the land, and we are made to understand that their shared love of it will end up mattering more than their differences. In other words, their shared love of the land will bring an end to the range wars. They will still have differences— but they will find a way to compromise and work together for the sake of the community and the land that they love.
We see this story of two warring segments of a community that ultimately find a way to come together played out in quite a few other musicals and with similar symbolic undertones. The musical Guys and Dolls also ends with two weddings, and they also represent the coming together of two opposing groups. One very unique thing about the show is that while it uses the old format of a serious couple and a comic couple, in Guys and Dolls it's impossible to say which are the leads and which are supporting. Both stories are of equal importance. The marriage of Adelaide and Nathan represents the coming together of the showgirls and the gamblers, another classic compromise between traditional feminine and masculine values. And the nuptials of Sarah and Skye symbolize a blending of conservative Christian and open-minded liberal values. The Damon Runyon stories that Guys and Dolls is based on were really about New York during the 1920s, when an intense conflict between conservative rural America and the free-thinking big urban cities had brought the disaster of prohibition on the country. It's clear that this is a conflict that still needs to be resolved. Other examples, the pajama game ends with the marriage of Babe and Sid, which brings the community of the pajama factory into harmony by uniting management and labor. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50 
at factormeals.com slash BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. Now let's turn our attention to that other source of conflict for a community, the dissenter, nonconformist, or outcast. Oklahoma has one of those as well, the groundbreaking character of Judd Fry. As we've noted in previous episodes, Oklahoma was a new invention, a musical play as opposed to a musical comedy or operetta, and Judd has a lot to do with that innovation. Without him, the dramatic stakes of the story and its thematic depth would be greatly diminished. What does Judd represent to this community? The most recent Broadway revival of Oklahoma was very controversial. People either loved it or hated it, and it was quickly dubbed Woklahoma because it was seen by many as trying way too hard to reinvent the show for a contemporary audience, and I have to admit I would agree. But one thing that I think that production got very right was its depiction of Judd as an incel a young man who feels so alienated and shut out from society that he becomes an angry, disgruntled, and violent threat to that society. Judd is neither a farmer nor a cowman, but rather a hired hand who comes into the community as a stranger. He does not belong to the land. None of that would necessarily be a problem. A different person coming into the same situation could have become integrated into the community and possibly even ended up marrying Lori, but not this guy. He has serious mental and emotional issues. There is something dark and twisted about him. He starts off creepy and grows more and more unhinged. But amazingly, early on, Rogers and Hammerstein give him a fantastic song in which he reveals his interior world. The floor creaks, the door squeaks. There's a field mouse a nibbling on a broom. His pain at feeling outcast and inadequate. And I sit by myself like a cobweb on a shelf by myself in a lonely Feeling like he is trapped inside his life and his own mind, his lonely room. But when there's a moon in my window and it slants down a beam across my bed and the shatter of a tree starts a-dancing on the wall and a dream starts a-dancing in my head and all of the things that I wish for turn out like I want them to be and I'm better than that smart alley cowhand who thinks he is better than me Ain't afraid of my arms And her own soft arms keep me warm And her long tangled hair Falls across my face Just like the rain in a storm And this song creates tremendous empathy from the audience for Judd We really feel for him But that only goes so far. Before long, we discover that he is not only an attempted rapist, but also probably a serial killer. He basically confesses that he killed a family on a farm where he once worked and where a woman rejected his advances. The serious question that Oklahoma then poses is what does society do with someone like that? How do we help them? How can we integrate them into society? And if that's not possible, what do we do then? 
Now, of course, Oklahoma opened during World War II when America and much of the world was intensely involved in defending itself. America was being forced to fight in self-defense against Germany and Japan. We had to fight back against aggression from Adolf Hitler. And of course, Hitler can be seen as the ultimate incel. At the climax of Oklahoma, we see Judd attack Curly, who is then forced to fight him in self-defense. They struggle violently until Judd ends up falling on his own knife. As I said, at that very moment, the Allied forces led by America are having to do battle with people who do not want to be part of the world community, and in fact are violently trying to break up and destroy that community. Sometimes the community has no choice but to fight back and save itself. Lerner and Lowe's 1947 musical Brigadoon is the story of a small village in the Scottish Highlands that only takes physical form and appears out of the mist one day out of every 100 years. This happened because of a miracle that was intended to protect the town from war and other evils of the outside world. I think it would be fascinating to see a production of Brigadoon in the near future because it would work as sort of a COVID metaphor. The townspeople have locked themselves in to protect their society. Again, one character, the dark and brooding young rebel Harry Beaton, is in love with the leading lady, but she has chosen to marry somebody else, which causes Harry to become very disgruntled and more and more alienated from the rest of the town, but not quite as psycho as Judd Fry. He ultimately endangers the entire community by deciding to run away from Brigadoon, which will break the spell and cause the town to disappear forever. Harry Beaton also represents that libertarian philosophy. Because he believes that his personal freedom is more important than anything else, he doesn't care about what will happen to the community as a result of his actions. He tries to escape and is pursued by the villagers who chase after him, literally carrying torches. At the climax of the chase, just as he is about to get away, he trips and falls and dies again by accident, smashing his head against a rock. This is classic mythic storytelling structure. The one who is against the community, the one who is endangering it, has to die. It's either him or the community. In order to save the community, the threat has to be vanquished. Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine will grapple with this issue many years later in Into the Woods and brilliantly illuminate the moral questions and complications that come with it. The giant must be killed in order to save the community, but Sondheim and Lapine make sure to remind us that there are always two sides to every story. Just remember, Just remember someone is on your side. Our side, someone else is not. While we're seeing our side, our side, maybe we forgot. They are not alone. No one is alone. In a number of other musicals, it's the leading character that is the outsider. Take Billy Bigelow in Carousel. From the very beginning of the story, he is in opposition to the small-town New England community that he is landed in. He doesn't share their values. He doesn't fit in. 
This conflict can only be resolved in one of two ways. Either the two parties can come together through an accommodation, in which the hero learns to become part of the community, or the individual is removed from the community, either by death or banishment. The community can't continue in conflict. Carousel sort of has it both ways. At the end of the first act, Billy leaves the community the only way that seems feasible to him, to commit suicide. But then, after death, he is taken to heaven, or at least somewhere on the other side, and given the chance to return to earth and atone for his sins, to redeem himself. He comes back and finds that now his wife and daughter are in conflict with the community. And after screwing things up several more times, Billy finally figures out a way to help his family come into harmony with the community. And in the very final moments of the show, he sings with them, and they sense his presence. It's the first time in the show he sings along with anyone else. Up to that point, everything he sings is solo. He is now finally in tune with the rest of the community. In contrast, at the end of The Music Man, the outsider Harold Hill, for the very first time in his life, gets his foot stuck in the door, as he says. He joins the community and presumably becomes fully integrated into it. Even several seemingly plotless modern-era shows and concept musicals follow this template. In the very thin story thread of Hare, we watch Claude struggle to fully join his community, the tribe of young people that has dropped out of mainstream society. Where do I go? Follow the river. Where do I go? Follow the gulls. Where is the something? Where is the someone that tells me why I live and die? All of the other hippies are able, willing, and eager to burn their draft cards during the big be-in at the end of Act One. But for some reason, Claude just can't bring himself to do it. He wants to be part of the community, but ultimately can't commit to all of their nonconformist values. By the end of the show, he has been drafted and shipped off to die in Vietnam. And in the finale, his tribe mourns for him and yearns for a day when everyone will be able to break free and let the sun shine in. In A Chorus Line, we see another variation on this in which Cassie, the dancer who left the community, now wants to be allowed back in to rejoin her tribe. And this is in contrast to Zach, who also left the community and is now in many ways the antagonist, collaborating with but also in opposition to the community. And in A Chorus Line's doppelganger Cats, it is the outcast figure Grizabella who is in opposition to her community. Some people have suggested that Cats is a metaphor for society's struggle in dealing with the homeless population. I don't know if the creators of the show would agree with that, but you could say that much like New York City during the 1980s, the solution to the problem that the Cats community comes up with is to send Grizabella away by giving her a one-way ticket to the heavyside layer. A small handful of musicals are about communities that are broken, failed, and corrupt. West Side Story is certainly one of them. You're in Town is another. And I would add Pippin to that list. And here I'm referring to the framing story of Pippin, in which a starry-eyed young actor, we don't know his name, is seduced into joining a dazzling company of players. But once he discovers that what they really want him to do is set himself on fire, he rejects this evil community and settles for the compromises of everyday life. And then there's Sweeney Todd. 
This is a community that has completely broken down and is filled with inequality and injustice. A community in which a small, privileged minority keep the majority of people destitute and starving. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. His skin was pale and his eye was odd. He shaved the faces of gentlemen who never thereafter were heard of again. He trod a path that few have trod. Did Sweeney Todd. A demon barber of Fleet Street. At the center of the story, we have another outcast who I see as a direct descendant of Judd Fry, and this time much more of a psycho. But again, the authors create tremendous empathy for him. His backstory is so compelling, and the injustices that he has suffered are so heartbreaking that even through his escalating series of murderous rampages, somehow we stay on his side. We continue to root for him through it all. Why? Because the judge and the beetle and the very society they rule are so evil that Sweeney remains the moral center of the story. And then there's Mrs. Lovett who we adore because she is so amoral. Like Mother Courage in Breck's play, Mrs. Lovett has discovered the key to surviving. Just do whatever you need to do and never look back. And in some primal way, I think we all want a little piece of that. As we watch the play, we start to think that life would be so much simpler if we had no conscience, no sense of right and wrong, and could be just like Mrs. Lovett, even as we're horrified by the things she feels free to do. Despite our deep empathy for Sweeney, the final message of the musical is very clear. Revenge does not pay. It only leads to more death, heartbreak, and hell. In the end, Sweeney is removed from the community, although it is very far from clear if any healing is possible. But let's end on a happier note. Although, because of the increasingly challenging economics of Broadway during the modern era and especially during the 21st century, cast sizes have gotten smaller and smaller, and as a result, the ability to represent entire communities on stage has been greatly diminished. But it's still not impossible to do, and there is one current Broadway show that has figured out a way to turn its small cast into a great advantage. That show is Come From Away. On the northeast tip of North America, on an island called Newfoundland, there's an airport. It used to be one of the biggest airports in the world, and next to it is a town called Gander. Welcome to the rack if you come from away. Huh? You probably understand about a half of what we say. Yeah. They say no man's an island, but an island makes a man. Especially when one comes from one like Newfoundland. Welcome to the rack. What is truly remarkable about this show is that with only 12 hardworking actors and a small onstage band, this show brings not one, but two fully realized communities to the stage. First, the townspeople of Gander, Newfoundland, and secondly, the plain people, the come-from-aways who find themselves stranded somewhere in the middle of nowhere. These two communities start out very wary and even afraid of one another. How they come together is a truly captivating and inspiring story, especially because it's true. The incredible achievement of Come From Away is made possible by all of those inherent attributes of the musical to bring communities to life and transcend time and space that I spoke about earlier. And it is especially made possible by a gifted creative team who figured out how to put all of that to use. Come From Away ends not with a union, but a reunion in which the plain people return to Gander in celebration of their shared experience ten years earlier. And the musical itself can be seen as an extension of that celebration. 
Of course, the show's message is crystal clear. The Newfoundlanders and the come-from-aways should be friends. Once again, we can connect the dots in the ongoing continuum of the Broadway musical from Oklahoma all the way to Come From Away, each team of creators inspired, whether they know it or not, by the geniuses and the shows that came before them. One, two, one, two, three, four. Welcome to the friends who have come from away. Welcome to the locals who have always said they'd stay. If you're coming from Toledo or you're coming from Taipei, because we come from everywhere, we, we all come from away. On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Albert Evans and I will wrap up season one with a special finale episode. I do hope you'll join us. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you will rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and get those algorithms working to make sure that everyone who might be interested knows about this show. As always, I want to thank KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and everyone at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.